Hi, I'm Lanise Brothers, a registered nutritionist, women's health, hormone, and menstrual cycle coach, and the founder of Eat Love Move, a nutrition and well-being practice. This is the Period Story Podcast, where in each episode, I sit down with a guest to talk about their period story. We get behind some of the myths and misconceptions about periods and so much more. Now, on to today's guest. On today's episode, we have Toral Shah. Toral is a nutritional scientist, functional medicine practitioner, food and health writer, and consultant, as well as the founder of The Urban Kitchen. Toral specializes in optimizing health and disease prevention through improving food, diet, and lifestyle. She uses evidence-based science knowledge along with lifestyle medicine and cooking skills to help support others to lead a healthier life by eating delicious and nutritious food. Toral is particularly passionate about cancer prevention and completed her MSc thesis in researching the foods that prevent reoccurrence of breast cancer. As a breast cancer patient and survivor, she understands how patients might want to change their diet and lifestyle post-diagnosis. Toral is also passionate about combating the, the lack of diversity in healthcare and ensuring both doctors and patients from BAME groups are equally represented within the NHS and healthcare systems. Welcome to the show. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about your very impressive resume later on in the show. But first, I want to ask you about the story of your very first period. Can you tell us what happened? I was actually one of the lucky ones. My mom had, you know, shared with me what exactly happens before you have a period. So I wasn't completely surprised, but I was actually in Egypt on holiday with my family. So I wasn't quite expecting it then. And I just had tummy cramps and hadn't felt great for a couple of days. And I actually attributed that to some fish we'd eaten. So I was like, no, the fish has made me really ill. And then obviously started my period and um, not being in, I think the, the thing that was difficult about that was we weren't back in London. We were in Egypt where it's a slightly different country where you don't know where you need to buy what you need to buy, like sanitary products and things. And it's also an Islamic country. So it's harder to ask who for you know, someone for help to where to go and buy that. So I felt sorry for my mum in hindsight now that I'm older, that she had to like, you know, make magic some things up to help, help me. And I know it was really lucky. It was quite a light early period, um, but I was only 11. So it was probably a little bit earlier than I probably anticipated having, you know, that happening to me. And so how did you feel when you got it? Surprised, um, but not, I did know what it was. Um, I didn't realize that I had have stomach cramps. No one had actually mentioned that part to me. I understood what it was like from a biological perspective, but I didn't realize I was going to have a, like a stomach ache and I wasn't going to feel very happy and I was going to feel kind of slightly miserable, a bit grumpy. Um, but, and also just not being at home. So being in a hotel uh, was a little bit challenging for me. Uh, but having my mum there with me all day, made it so much easier than if I'd been at school or somewhere else. You said that your mom talked to you about it beforehand, so you weren't completely surprised about what you saw. No. What sort of things did she teach you about? So I think for my mom, it was really important that someone told me, well, she told me about what a period was and why you had it and what was going to happen because she had such a terrible experience herself. Um, My mom's actually one of five sisters, and despite being number four, 
no one had really explained periods to her. She knew something happened. She knew there's something mysterious. She knew, she knew that there were times of the month where her sisters were a bit grumpy and things were happening, but she didn't really know. So when she started her period, she was actually the same age as me. She was 11 and she was at school and she started bleeding and just literally thought she was dying and didn't know what to do and just ended up using loads of tissues and things like that. And then obviously, this isn't the taste before you know we had all the amazing sanitary products that we have now so they used to use towels and rags and and then used to buy these pads where you used to have to put them in some sort of special like contraption so they could stick to your pants and things like that so my mom said she just didn't want me to have that experience and not know I was quite precocious I was already had a really high reading level and didn't knew a lot about biology so it made it a little bit easier for my mom so just to be able to understand what was happening to me biologically um, made a difference and then when you got back from holiday and you went back to school, what was it like with the conversations with your friends? And interesting, I was one of the youngest ones to start my period. And it was like a bit like, oh my God, I'm so grown up. I'm better than you guys. I already started my period. It was that kind of conversation. Because in those days, that was like, yeah, who grew boobs first and who had their period? Yeah, that made you just sort of a sort of grown up girl as opposed to a little girl. And when you you were talking to your friends, you said that your mom had already talked to you about it beforehand. Were you kind of the educator amongst your friends? We'd already had some sort of sex education and talked about periods at school by then. So whilst I may have talked, I don't remember talking. I do remember talking to my friends about it, but I don't remember going into detail. I think we already all, whether our parents had done it or whether that was at school, we had had some information at least. So it wasn't completely. And actually, you know, I didn't have a terrible experience and it wasn't, and it wasn't something we talked about loads. It was just more, oh, I had it rather than anything else. It was only as we got a little bit older that we started talking a little bit more about it. I think at that first couple of years, it wasn't something that we maybe talked about. So as you got older, you started to talk about it more. Was it starting to be in the context of more of sex and relationships with boys or was it quite more still on the kind of biological functional level? I think it's more on the biological functional level. I think it depends on everyone's friends group. I think my friends were not, most of my friends were not the people having sex at 14 or 15 or things like that. So uh, there were some in my school, um, but it was more about, okay, what can you use? Does it feel great? Does it feel dirty? You know, what about swimming? What about the gym? And and this is when, always, there wasn't much choice of products then. There were very thick sanitary towels and there were, period um, t- tampons with applicators so it's before the smaller shows my age this, um it showed before the kind of smaller um little tampons came out without applicators before i mean i remember um when always came out with the, the pads with wings and so that was a new, revolutionary new thing um you know when i was maybe like 14 or 15 so that was something new and we were all a little bit like oh this makes it so much better it doesn't fall off things like that so we would talk more about the practicalities of it right. um, at that point, and obviously as we got older, I think the sex and relationship part didn't actually come into conversation with the periods part. There were two quite separate conversations, even though they're obviously inextricably linked. We didn't talk about it together that way. And what about you said that when you got your first period, you said that you had a stomach, stomach ache. Was period pain a part of you having a period? Yeah, period pain has continued to be part of me having a period. And it's something that I have lots of conversations about because it's something that we didn't talk about. And now, like, yeah, I'm on day five, so I'm going to be very honest about that. I was going to meet a friend on Friday, which was day two. 
And I messaged him and I said, oh, I've got period pains and, you know, I'm not feeling great. Let's not meet for a coffee. Whereas I probably wouldn't have done that with boys before. Um, I mean, it's a very good friend. But even then, I, I think I'm much more open about it just because we, as a society, we're talking a bit more about it. We're talking more about it being a normal bodily function. As before, we just hid it. It wasn't something you'd ever tell. And I think my brother was aware of these things, but he's definitely much more aware now. <laughs> why why do you man. say that? Because he has a wife. Yeah, he has a sister. He doesn't have any daughters. He's got sons. But I think we're much more open to talking about it. It wasn't something I would necessarily have said to him when we were 13, you know? Oh, this is what's happening. He must have known, but he didn't. Like It was a bit confusing for him too. So again, we do we need to educate the boys just as much as we educate the women? So why do you think society is more open about periods and talking about periods now than it used to be? I don't know, actually. <clears throat> I don't know if it's just because we're more open about talking about so many things. We talk about relationships more. We talk about sexuality more. Uh, we talk about sex more. We talk about... Um, I think the world has changed so much. I think particularly in the UK where we were a very kind of closed, stiff upper lip kind of society. And I think things are changed. The society has just changed. Uh, I think we've also understand things a bit more from a biological perspective. There's a lot more science about understanding um, all sorts of things around the period, whether it's the hormonal and the emotional aspects, whether it's the physical aspects and what we can do to support ourselves. I think it's also having a whole society of women like my mum, who wanted their daughters to have different experiences and talked about it. But yeah, I was out with my sister-in-law the other day and she's from a different culture. Um, she's from Kyrgyzstan and they didn't, her mum didn't explain anything. Her mum gave her a book. So I think it really depends on your own things. For my mum, my mum's hugely, hugely open. My mum's also quite scientific and she works in the healthcare industry. So for, for me, I think that was because of her passion, she wanted it. I wonder, I'd be really interested to speak to my cousins to see whether they had the same experience, even though, our, you know, their mums were all brought up with my mum. I feel like my mum's slightly different. So I, I will actually ask them this next time I speak to them, just because I think it'll be a really interesting conversation. Do you think your mum being so open about periods and kind of menstrual health in general changed the relationship that you had with I can't say it did or it didn't, because obviously she was always like that, so... For me, it was a part of the biological life and that was what was happened to girls. And we always talked about it. And I didn't have to hide it and I didn't have to hide buying products. So I think it would have made it easier when I hear about some of my friends' stories and I think that at least I had someone who was actively engaged in the process and explaining and buying the products and doing things and, and making sure I had everything I need. Um, obviously, I can't imagine what it would be like if I had to not know. And I do know from friends and family members that, they didn't really know what's going on. They had to try and find tissues and towels and rags, even in those, you know, and even now I feel like when you think about people from different countries, people still don't really know. So for me, I'm just grateful that I had my mom explain what it was before. Yeah, I think that's very, it's very different to a lot of the other guests that I've had on the show where shame and secrecy is a, is a big theme and it kind of, it, then translates into the relationship they have with their period. And a lot of them have said as they get older, it's only now where people are more open that they actually feel like, they. why am I so ashamed of this? It's nothing to be ashamed of. So I think it's amazing that your mom's openness and not, not having to hide it has just made you, it sounds like you have a very matter-of-fact relationship with your period. 
I do now, but I do think there was shame and secrecy. I wouldn't have told, I would have told my female friends. I would never have told any male friends. Um, my brother, my dad knew just because our family is quite open and, and that's the way it is. But I wouldn't have told maybe even boyfriends and male friends and other family members because they'd say, oh, why don't you want to go swimming and things like that. And that you'd sort of make something up. And, we wouldn't, and I think it's, the society has changed now. Um, and so we are able to talk about it more. The fact that you're even doing this, I love that you have a whole podcast dedicated to get your period because this happens to half the world, hmm. literally half the world. We've you know, shrouded it in secrecy and shame for so long. And I still think for me, when I think about culturally, there are so many aspects of that. So um, I'm Indian. And one of the things about when you have your period is you can't um, sort of pray and go to a temple. Um, you're not supposed to cook for people if you're not supposed to use certain things. You're not supposed to, yeah, and there's so much, there's so many things you're not supposed to do. And I, and, I, and I can understand why. In some aspects, it was to give people rest so they could actually rest and relax. And then it became something dirty and something secret and something. And actually, the whole point of why these rules were created to give people some time to rest and recuperate while these things happen to their body has become something nasty and dirty and secret. And I think it's partly the whole patriarchal nature of culture and religion. Um, and I could go on about that a little more. And so that's been forgotten. But I think for me, when I hear these stories still in the news of places like Nepal and India, where people are made to sleep outside and not eat, are not given food, and then you know, people are dying. I'm thinking it's 2020. This is ridiculous that we are, well, society and patriarchy is punishing women for having a natural bodily function. It's ridiculous. And it still happens in so many countries and cultures where you're not supposed to go to whatever your area of prayer is or eat with other people or touch other people and things like that. And I find that horrible. Even in, in yoga, actually, just still talking about culture, there's this kind of old school mentality where they, you hear male practitioners say you shouldn't do yoga on your period. And I actually quite find that quite frustrating because it kind of basically saying that you can, you're not allowed to listen to how you feel and what your body is telling you. And, and actually yoga is amazing when you have your period, especially have things like period pain and cramps because it can, it can ease a lot of that. So, you know, this, what you're saying about patriarchy and cultural um, kind of experiences drifting into how people talk about periods, it goes into loads of different areas. Well, I think we have to remember that yoga comes from uh, India and the Hindu culture. And that's part of that why male practitioners say that because they didn't want to have like people essentially making their yoga space dirty and and you know they want it not to be purified and it's ridiculous because you you're absolutely right yoga is amazing for period pains and I for me I'm really conscious about how I look after my body and what I do so yoga is one of the things I'll do I will go and do some cycling and stuff but maybe I won't go and lift really heavy weights the first couple of days just because it, it makes me feel really tired but I think we have to look back at why did this happen like, you know men made rules about women's bodies for so many years and this, and still do. I mean, think mm. about it. What's been seminal in the last couple of weeks is that certainly in the UK, you know, Scotland is going to provide free period products to school and now England's following suit. But we pay a tax on these things. Why are we paying tax 
on sanitary wear, which is an essential item, and we're being taxed as if it was a luxury item. And I find this incredibly uh, patriarchal and kind of ridiculous because it's not a luxury item. We need it. And, and actually, we haven't educated people to understand that. And there's still so many things around peer pays and work and stuff, and I have people just don't, don't talk about it. And you know, some women are debilitated with these pains um, or whatever's happening around that. And so for them to go to work, they can't even say anything. It's not built into our structure. And there are lots of signs that this is changing, but not as fast as it should. And I'd say that it's certainly when I speak to younger people, when they're like in their teens and 20s, they're much more open, men and women, uh, about periods, menstrual health, sexuality, and all of that. And I think that's forcing people, older people, like older people, not in like, from 30 plus to start to change their attitudes. I want to talk a little bit about um, your cancer diagnosis and how that changed your, um, your period, because I know some cancer patients, they go into medical menopause. And I wondered, was that your experience? So I have had a bit of both. Um, So it depends on your cancer. So firstly, I had breast cancer, which was very hormone, um, related so basically it grow, grows in response to estrogen and progesterone um so what happens in those cases which is a lot of women is they want to give you something that will um stop you reduce the amount of estrogen in your body or stop your ovaries from producing estrogen so they're two different kind of things one is by taking zolodex which is an injection the other one is taking a tablet like tamoxifen um i have avoided Zolodex for for a long time. I, I have an appointment on Friday where I'm sure we're going to have the conversation yet again. Um, but I have had Tomoxfen, and I it's it has stopped my periods um, because it's an estrogen blocker. And what it is interesting because it's such a part of being a woman, it feels very different. So part of it's like, oh, great, I can just you know do whatever I want to do. I can swim all year, you know, all the time. But actually blocking your estrogen not having estrogen changes your mood changes how your body works changes how your brain works um also increases your risk of so many diseases and things like that so whilst it does help you to when you're in medical menopause to reduce your risk of having breast cancer again or certainly any hormone dependent cancers it does change so much of your body and i think this leads us kind of back to menopause where again it just happens to half the world and we haven't been talking about it until the last year or so which I find amazing because women are such an integral part of our society and our workforce now, and we're not actually allowing them the space to understand the menopause and work through it and make allowances for some of the really big changes that happen in your body. Again, as a cancer patient, when you go through medical menopause, people just think, oh, you're being a little bit difficult, or you're being hot or something like that. But it's so debilitating, like some of the side effects. Um, so for me, the hot flushes were one thing, but I had some of the rarer side effects, including you just seem to have a very, very, very sore and dry vagina and other parts of vulva. And it's something that we're starting to talk about. It happens in normal menopause too, but because this happens really suddenly, you, I was in absolute agony and I literally couldn't walk or do anything to the point where I'm, I can't take this drug anymore. And so not only do your period stop, which is, you know, a small thing, but it's actually, why do they stop? It's, it, it affects all your hormones because it's blocking your estrogen. And for me, it just ended up being, both times I tried it because I've had breast cancer twice, um, it hasn't been 
something I could actually tolerate for more than a few weeks at a time because it's so painful. And we've still not really researched or found a cure to help women with these side effects. And it's something I talk about. I'm sure if it had been for men, like Viagra, we discovered it quite quickly. But because it's for women, the research just hasn't been there. And, you know, lots of women have go through medical menopause with different types of cancer because of chemotherapy can just also stop your ovaries from working and things like that. But there's so many other reasons, you know, and we're not really still researching what we can do to help. And every time I go to a conference, I was at a conference for younger women in breast cancer last year. Um, they were talking about how women, there was such a recurrence in younger women because they stopped the hormone treatment. And I, and I kept putting my hand up after every single lecture I spoke and said, but you're not helping us with the side effect. I mean, I know I can do for myself and I work in nutrition and lifestyle medicine, but even then there's very little, and you're insisting that we keep on these drugs. And I totally understand why, but actually it's much, much harder for younger women and you're not helping us. And it, we're finding it really difficult, both emotionally and physically. What was the response of your doctor when you went to them and talked about the side effects you were experiencing? So my own GP this time around, I have a female GP who's absolutely phenomenal, who used to actually work in AIDS research and so has had some experience of women who've had AIDS treatment having exactly the same side effects because they suddenly go into menopause too. And so she had loads of ideas of things to help me, uh, including taking some vaginal estrogen pessaries and creams and all sorts, of, and just the conversations and just actually listening to me. And that was amazing. The previous time, they just all seemed really baffled that this was a side effect. I did end up seeing a gynecologist at Chelsea and Westminster. But again, we kind of agreed that let's just stop it and we didn't know what to do. I think I'm very knowledgeable about uh, hormones and how our body works. So I have a little bit more um, say in my, my own treatment with my cancer. And so it has been a little bit easier to have those conversations. I'm also quite strong-willed. So if I don't, I'm not doing something because it's making me feel horrible that I'm not doing it. Um, and I can explain why I'm not doing it and what kind of... But I think for a lot of women, suffer in silence. And I was at an event on Tuesday about medical menopause and the side effects for younger women with a, a charity called Trek Stop. And, you know, so many women had no idea that there were things that could help them. They could take some forms of HRT or they could take some of these cr like creams or patches and things like that and I think again we need to start educating people. we need to talk about these things and if we shroud it in secrecy and again don't talk about how it impacts our society and our workforce and women then we're not going to be able to help them. What do you think your experience of being in medical menopause um, would do for your eventual journey into perimenopause and menopause? Um, <clears throat> I think I'm a little bit understanding of how, how difficult it might be and preempting that I'm going to need some support around this. I'm also conscious that a lot of things that can help people in through perimenopause and menopause may not be suitable for me just because I've had an, an estrogen-dependent type of cancer. Um, but I'm also conscious there are people who are interested in this and talking about it. And there's things that we can do from a, a nutrition and lifestyle medicine perspective. So at the moment, I'm spending a lot of time researching and understanding the estrogen system. We have an estrogen detoxification system in our body. So perhaps it's for me and my body, it's not all about um, removing the estrogen from the body, but it's about helping my body and supporting my body to naturally detoxify that estrogen and go through that system. What's really interesting about the perimenopause and menopause is that we've 
not talked about this to women. When do we get it? We've never ever talked about this in school. So we obviously talk about periods and stuff. We've never educated girls to talk, understand what menopause is. We sort of just say you have menopause and your period stuff. But we've never really educated. So maybe that's an area where now we are, I know that's on the curriculum now, that will make a difference to women. For my own personal journey, I'm just conscious from now on. <laughs> being being in my 40s that, you know, perimenopause may happen soonish. I don't know when I would go into natural menopause because my mum had breast cancer too and she had chemotherapy and suddenly went into menopause um, from having her period and being actually quite normal. To, so we don't actually know what the natural age of my mum having menopause is. And that's your really the biggest indication for when you would have menopause. So I'm really interested to see what happens in the next kind of 10 years. It's interesting that you're talking about a mix of HRT um, and also nutrition and lifestyle interventions. And I think that's actually really positive to hear because in the conversations about menopause, they're very dominated right now of HRT, HRT, HRT. And I do find it frustrating. And that's not just because I am a holistic nutritionist. It's because I just know that it HRT isn't, it's a solution, but it's not the only solution. It's not the only solution, but from my perspective, I, when I think about the side effects of the body not having estrogen, how it increases your risk of cardiovascular disease, affects your brain so you're not working so as well, you have brain fog um, and all the other different risks and osteoporosis, things like that. I do think I, I kind of want HRT just to continue, you know, for my own health. But I agree, I think there's so many things. So one of the things I wrote about last year is that there's been some research that the Mediterranean diet, so diet full of vegetables and fruits, legumes, a little bit of dairy, lots of kind of fish, can actually help to delay our menopause by up to three years. Delaying our menopause is actually healthier because it means our body has estrogen for longer and we reduce these risks of having cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis. But also, when we've reduced our estrogen, um, we also become a little bit more insulin resistant. Um, mm. We're already becoming more insulin resistant as we get older, particularly if we're putting weight around our kind of midriff area, which often happens as our estrogen levels decrease. And so if we can help people by eating a little bit more differently, then that will make a difference to their long-term health. So it will help because hopefully they'll help not put on so much weight by putting on that fat in the midriff area by having, because if we're insulin resistant, then we're going to process our food in, in a slightly different way. Um, and so insulin is not going to work as well. So we are more likely to store um, extra food as body fat. So by understanding that, that helps hopefully for us to understand how to eat. Also, we we need lots of fiber uh, to help detoxify estrogen from our body, um, and it helps our gut health and you know everything anyway. And having these kind of legumes and things, we know that that there's so many good things for heart health, for our you know our, we've got, there's lots of good protein in them. There's lots of really good fiber. So maybe it's about doing a little bit more research to understand how that's going to help our bodies. I think that having a slightly lower carb diet can help some women and again we're looking and I think it's again that works again with our insulin resistance and I wrote about this a couple of days ago um, so maybe it's just understanding this a bit more because it's not something I don't think that so doctors aren't really educated in menopause that's the other thing I find it quite scary that lots of GPs aren't trained in menopause unless your GP is a specialist 
menopause certification, they may not know that much, even if they're women. And given that half of the population are women and will go through menopause, I find that quite terrifying. So why isn't nutrition, why isn't menopause part of the general GP training, given that it's important to everybody and menopause is going to affect half their patients? It's it's actually quite frightening sometimes what you hear um, secondhand about what GPs have said about menopause. So I was working with someone last year and her GP said to her, well, oh, perimenopause isn't real. It's not a real thing. Yeah. Oh, my God. And that's actually not the first time I had heard that. And it was only when I got her to do some tests and then we went. she went to her GP with the test results and said, well, actually, this is what my tests are showing. And the GP was like, oh, actually, you might, this might be perimenopause. So, but then it was started being a conversation about HRT. And, you know, HRT is fine, as I said, but I think there are other things because my, this client was so young um, that could have been done first. So I, that education piece is so important. And I know that you're, you're involved in a lot of campaigning. Um, have you done any campaigning around more education for GPs within this area? Not in the menopause areas yet. It's something I am t- constantly talking about, though. Um, you have to pick and choose the campaigns that you do. But one of the things I have talked about is why are, I would love doctors to learn more about nutrition. So I'm really supportive of an organization called NutriTank who are trying to get a nutrition onto the um, curriculum you know, for medical school. Obviously the same with Culinary Kitchen and you know, Dr. Rupi. So there's, there's definitely that. As far as menopause, for me, it, it was really getting my head around. I didn't really realize that doctors weren't educated until I've started investigating it for myself and trying to help women with the, particularly with medical menopause. Cause I look, I work with a lot of um, cancer patients, but also some of my cancer patients are post or during menopause and, and, and they're not getting any support. So I think and it's not even the difference between male GPs and female GPs. It's just that people are unsigned. So I do think I need to start campaigning for this because it's such a simple and natural bodily function and part of life. And if it affects our workforce, then we need to support that. And I think that's the interesting element. And I think that's where it will make a difference. Understanding that people who are most productive, whether they're male or female, are kind of between 45 and 64. They're the ones who make the most money. So understand that women who go through menopause are normally within that age frame, and that's going to impact our economy and our workforce. That is what I think will actually push people into looking and um, helping people through menopause more because it affects our workforce. I don't think the actual fact that women just having menopause and it, it being difficult is something that's encouraging people to necessarily research or um, learn more and it's a shame because why does it have to all be about the economy i want to just talk a little bit about your uh, one of your other passions which is about um, the lack of diversity in healthcare and i wondered if you could speak a little bit about your experience in um uh, having dealt with the NHS with your cancer treatment, and you, did you feel that your ethnicity affected your the treatment you got? So I'm actually going to say no. I am very lucky. I have a really amazing team. They're quite mixed. Um, I'm also very understanding about my own body and, and what was working. So when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, 
Um, it actually took me quite long to be diagnosed, not because of my ethnicity, because I was young. I was 29 and no one really believed me. And so I was very lucky that my mum believed me. Uh, my own GP at the time didn't believe me. So I had a new GP who didn't take into account of the family history. And then, you know, was diagnosed and looked after. I think from where I'm, why I'm involved with this is just understanding the statistics. For me, I come from, uh, I went to medical school. My mom works in healthcare. I had, I understood how the system worked. So I knew, we knew that when my GP wasn't taken seriously, what we needed to do to be taken seriously so that my mom helped me to have, be diagnosed. And actually I have to be all credit to my mom. It's because my mom worked in hospital and, and she asked her radiologist friends to help get me diagnosed. Um, so that wasn't a problem. But going forward and working with cancer patients and having lots of friends who have had cancer and who have cancer, there is a real discrepancy. So many of the women that I meet are diagnosed much, much later because the statistics show that women on average have to go at least two to three times more to their GP if they're from a black Asian ethnic minority to be take for their symptoms to be taken seriously so they have tests done. To, have can- to be diagnosed with cancer. This means that women are often diagnosed later, men too, BAME, BAME men too. Um, the BAME community is generally diagnosed later, and often at a later stage, which means that they may not respond to treatment because they may have spread. And for me, that's a problem. That's really scary. When we come back to the actual research, um, there's been some really interesting research that came out in the last couple of weeks in the BMJ. Uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Um, Adrian Milner did this some of the work. She looked at representation in the NHS, and despite there being so many doctors who are of British, Indian, or Chinese or other BAME populations, white men are still overrepresented at consultant level, which means they're the ones forming the policies and the structures around what's happening. You know around different things. So if women aren't being represented and the BAME community is being represented, then our needs aren't being looked after. So Chinese people, there are more Chinese people working in the NHS, ethnicity-wise, um, than any other group, yet they're not represented at the top, which is really sad. Um, as far as cancer in particular, I'm lucky, like, don't get me wrong, I have an amazing team and I have a very mixed team. I have uh, my main doctor is of Chinese descent. My breast cancer nurse is, uh, you know, of African descent. So I've, you know, that's not really a problem for me. My main problem is for other people who are not getting diagnosed or being diagnosed very, very late and at a point where it's not actually able to help them. Um, and they're not being taken seriously. And the provision of care is less. So I was reading something about transplants in the Muslim community yesterday. and over 38% of the people waiting um, for transplants are of the BAME community, and they're way less likely to get a transplant organ, whatever, partly because of matching, but partly they're, they're just for, they're lower down the list. So it's really interesting that we still have this really inherent racism in the kind of medical part of healthcare. Now I'm going to flip it on its head and talk about the other part. So the other part of health and well-being is the, the people like the fitness trainers and the yoga teachers and the nutritionists and the holistic carers. And again, that's very dominated by white females, despite people having the knowledge. And if you look at social media, massively overrepresented if you're a Caucasian female of a certain age, particularly if you're blonde. And it's ridiculous because this doesn't mean you know more. In fact, a lot of the time you know a lot less, I would say. Um, not because you're not educated, but because 
people are listening to you because you look a certain way, you're slim and you look healthy. That doesn't mean you're healthy. And I find that terrifying that we're taking society's taking advice just from the way people look rather than what they understand and what they know. And actually how you look just because you're slim doesn't mean you're healthy. For example, how often you get a cold or infect, you know, infections, that's a good sign of whether your immune system and your, your work, you're healthy, how much energy you have, that you're not feeling tired, that you're not feeling um, very moody and depressed. All of these things are much better indication of where your health is, your mental health, your physical health, your social, than how your body looks in the bikini. So that's a big thing for me. Um, so why don't we have more representation? Because I know so many amazing women and men who are of the BAME you know, groups working healthy and they're not promoted in all these kind of events like Live Well events and all these like shows. It's still very much run by white women for white women. Um, and so are magazines. So but health is for everybody. It's an mm. integral part of society. It's an integral part of balance. It's an integral part of you know, equality, equanimity. So why don't we have that? Now, what do you think can be done to change that? I, that's such a big question. Um, I think firstly to us talking about it. And I, mm. I, I, I'm really privileged that I'm talking to you about this. I've talked to Vicky Schilling who runs a podcast. So many people who have picked up on this aspect of there is not equality between all the different groups that live in. Remember London is a very, and I'm talking about London in particular, um, it's a very mixed group. You know, 52% of people identify as BAME in London. So we should have that kind of representation, uh, whether it's in the medical healthcare or whether it's in the holistic space. We don't have that. Um, what's the answer? I think education, talking about things. Um, I am actually talking to a lot of cancer organizations because their campaigns are very much using white Caucasian men and women. But however, cancer doesn't discriminate, it affects all of us. So one of the things I'm doing is requesting that they... Uh, have campaigns which are very inclusive and diverse of different people of different races, different body shapes, different ages. Um, some people do it better than others. Um, also, the information and the literature that's produced should be inclusive too, because that's not at the moment. And certainly, and I'm thinking about kind of more the diet and the nutrition literature for both cancer and diabetes, it's very much based around white Caucasian people and their diets. And remember that we different ethnicities have very different diets. So mm -hmm. if you look at diabetes, um, we have a much higher proportion of ethnic groups who have, the BAME groups rather, that have diabetes. Yet we're not necessarily, the dietitians aren't providing them with advice that's appropriate to their ethnicity and their culture and the food they eat. And I think that's really important. So I've been doing a project with South Asians um, since 2004 with a friend of mine, Dr. Natasha Patel, who's a, a consultant endocrinologist at Guys and we've been working at that. We've been changing the food so it reflects the ethnicity and the culture of people and what they like to eat and how things are very much in the Asian Indian community. You know, celebrations are all about food. So then how do you like you know, tailor it to help people given that there seems to be something every single day? How do we then help people? So these are the kind of things where we need to really start asking for things, making a difference, talking to organizations. And there is some white fragility in that. I'm not going to lie. I had a meeting recently with an organization. And they kept insisting that they were doing things. But when I've asked for examples, they haven't been able to do, provide me with examples. Um, and I find that really difficult. So I do keep going back saying what's happening. And I haven't. they said we're looking into our organization. And if nothing happens in the next few weeks, I'm going to 
take it to their CEO. I'm also, and I realize I've grown in my own confidence that I know enough about this. I know enough about the stits. I know enough to help people. Before I felt like I often get pushed back because I felt like I was bullied back and there was a lot of pushback because people didn't want to do it. Now I've just become stronger within myself with my own self-development. So I'm able to have those conversations. I'm not saying that I don't go in and have this conversation and then go home and cry. I will. I'm not going to lie because it's very emotional. But having groups where I'm on an amazing group called Yogis of Colour and I know you're on that group too. And for me, just to be able to talk about these things and ask for support has made a huge difference because I think energetically I have this massive group of people backing me and who've got my back all the time. Um, so that makes a difference. So that, I, I think we're, we, we need to, there's a long way to go. I mean, even right now we're, you know, we're in the midst of coronavirus and I'm absolutely disgusted some of the, some of the racism I'm hearing towards Chinese and other Asian people with the coronavirus because it, some of the things I've heard are absolutely horrific. I tell people to go back to their own country, not doing that, they don't want to be treated by Chinese doctors. It's it's just it just shows that we've actually in a world at the moment where the government and I'm gonna blame the governments and people are really just trying to divide us because mm. they, they don't know what they're doing. They're trying to divide us and separate us and make it about us and them. And it's not. We're all the same. We're all if you take our skin away, we're all exactly the same underneath. Exactly the same. We're made of blood. We're made of muscle. We're made of ourselves. We have nerves. And it's terrifying that we still see the outside skin differences as being so important. And, you know, we all have this. You know, I had someone try to click something the other, and they're really late. And I was looked at the name. I was like, you know, culturally, I was like, that person's just going to be late because I knew that. You know, it was a black person. I was like, oh. And I caught myself. I just thought, Troy, you can't think like that. This is really part of the problem. Um, that person was really late, but that's why I was thinking it, not because before they were late. But you know, and so I think we all have to be conscious of our own state where we're discriminating people in our head and just you just acknowledging that means it goes away just being open about being brave to it being vulnerable and i think brini brown has some fantastic things she talks about racism and and differencing differences between people in her uh, book um braving the wilderness and i think that's definitely and i've highlighted some bits i've been sharing bits and pieces because we've got to a world where we're trying to be in a tribe and that and it doesn't matter and we're almost believing what the tribe our tribe says, for example, with veganism, you fit the vegan tribe. And whether people are saying things that make sense or not sense, and you just want to fit so badly in that tribe, you're basically then trying to distance yourself from other people. But actually, we're all the same. That the, the person next door who's your best friend, who's not vegan, is still going to be the person that's going to be sitting at your bedside if you happen to be in hospital or something like that. I think we've forgotten the basic humanity of people. And that's mm. so important. So <laughs> that no, that was brilliant. There were so many amazing things that you said there. I think one of the main things is supporting su- supporting other people, having your network, having knowing that there are people who have your back. But also, I think what's really interesting is, and I've seen this a lot, is knowing if you have a big platform, being able to lift up other people. So talking about in social media, how it's very a very white space in terms of health and well-being, being able to lift up, if you have a big platform, lifting up others. Um, but I just want to, as we kind of round off the podcast, I want to just take it back to your experience and what your the way you feel about your body now, your period. What do you know now that you wish you knew back in the beginning when you were an 11-year-old year girl in Egypt having your first period? 
Um, oh, that's a difficult one. I, w- I think, you know, how normal it is. And it's okay to give yourself a bit of space and time on those days to rest and, and relax on the days and, and listen to your own body. And this, you know, what's amazing to me is I've had my period for 30 years now, <laughs> yeah, over 30 years. And how I feel much about each month hasn't really changed that much. Um, but understanding that it's not dirty and that you can talk about it and you're allowed to say to someone, you know what, I'm not doing that today because I've got my period is okay. What do you have going on right now? Where can podcast listeners find out more about you? Um, thank you so much for asking me. I, I'm on social media. I'm on at The Urban Kitchen. I'm on, I'm on Twitter, but not so much. Um, I also have a Facebook page. And most of the time I'm sharing ways of how people can eat healthy, nutritious, but tasty food that will make a difference to their you know, health and well-being. Um, I am doing some research at the moment. And I'm actually putting together a proposal for a PhD, which is very exciting. Um, I'm also talking at lots of events around cancer and the BAME community and nutrition and how we can make a difference to our health. So I'm all over the place at the moment, which is really exciting. I'm working a lot with cancer organizations to create not only this element of um, inclusivity and diversity, but also let's talk about more about the nutrition, the lifestyle aspects of what we can do to help prevent any type of cancer, but also particularly with breast cancer and things like that. So I am working with the World Cancer Research Fund. I work with Breast Cancer Now. I work with Trekstock. I work with lots of charities to look at how we can help educate people uh, and actually support them through that journey if they've already got cancer and to help prevent. So for me, that's a really big part of my life. So yeah, that's, that's one of the ways you find me. Brilliant. So if listeners take one thing away from everything, all the amazing things that you've said on this podcast, what would you want that to be? In relation to what aspect? Any, any of it, anything, that, any nuggets that you, you feel like you just want to stick in their mind. So as a woman, I'm assuming most people listening to the podcast are women. Remember that our bodies are so much more than our bodies. We are so much more than our bodies. But do listen to yourself. Do listen to your body and give yourself what you need. Amazing. I think that's, that's such valuable advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Toral. It's been amazing. You've certainly given me a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight that we finally got to connect after knowing each other for a while. For more inspiring conversations, head over to periodstorypod.com where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you want help with your menstrual or hormone health, email me on hello at eatlovemove.com to set up a free 30-minute hormone health review. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Tag us, come say hi, and send in your requests for who you'd like to see on the show on Instagram and Twitter on at periodstorypod or email us at hello at periodstorypod.com. I'm Lenise Brothers, and you've been listening to Period Story. Thank you so much for listening.